0: What about now? There you go. That sounds better. Good morning, everyone. Uh, I think you might have heard part of the, the good morning part, so we'll just keep it there. i uh, glad you decided to be here. Uh, we're continuing our discussion on uh, Christian ethics and understanding how to make right decisions or how to make the better decision in certain scenarios. Uh, we're going to be picking up where we left off last week, but the main purpose of this particular class is going to be focusing on a moral God. And so that's going to be where our arguments are going to go. Um, but I'm excited to be with you this morning, and I, I just think that it's fitting, of course, to uh, show this little guy. So uh, this is Roman. Uh, he was born Friday at 10.33. So uh, as soon as I get done teaching Bible class, I'm going to go pick them up from the hospital. Uh, they get out on good behavior. So we're excited about that. And of course, uh, Kenley was just overjoyed. She came in the hospital room, and she saw it said, Mommy, Daddy, Mommy, Daddy, where's Roman? And so she wanted to go pick him up and hold him. So I appreciate you guys. Uh, Definitely a lot of prayers went up on our behalf. I know that um, because everything went well, and I appreciate all the comments and uh, the visits and uh, just everything that you've done for us. So thank you, and I thought you would like to see those pictures uh, before we got started this morning. Uh, Before we begin class, let's pray together. Lord our God, we thank you for the day. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to study your word. Help us as we uh, take the things that you have taught us and that we will teach others, but Uh, We'll write these on our hearts so that we can share them with the world and give them the same hope and the same promises that we have. Be with us this day. I pray this to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. So as I told you, we're going into our discussion thinking about a moral God. Um, We're going to pick up where we left off last week of looking at reasons why we can believe that there are actual objective morals in the world. It's not just something that we get to decide of, You know, I just feel like this is right, or I think that this should be right, or I just feel like that's just wrong, and there's just this icky feeling I have in me. Um, There's something a little more substantial. The difference between objective and subjective, just to go back and reiterate this point, objective is if you're going to describe an actual object itself, that it has characteristics about it. Subjective is from the subject standpoint, how I feel about a particular object. I can say that this pew has a blue cushion on it, And I can look at it and I say, I don't like this pew. I just, I don't think that's somewhere I would want to sit. I don't think it's that comfortable. I can have opinions about it, but that doesn't mean that it's actually what the object actually is. When we deal with objective morals, and when we deal with discussions in general about morals, we're going to say that there's something objective about the feeling of right and wrong. More importantly, as our discussion is going to go on this morning, we're going to say that's given by God. He's given us commands that we can go to the Scriptures and we can say, objectively, this is what God says is good, this is what He says is bad, this is what we should be doing, this is what we should avoid. But there is also another component of understanding morals that is written within man's heart. There's something about why we feel the way that we do when things are just not right, where you have that feeling that rises up within you that something's pulling you in one way or the other. I think it's because of a particular code that God has written within us That we should be able to identify what is right and wrong. And what ends up happening is that you have the Word of God running parallel to what He has created. If we, in fact, are created in the image of God, we respond correctly and effectively to God's Word. It makes sense to us because it gives order to the chaos that may be in our lives. Now, we can make this argument without even opening up Scripture because that's going to be one of the things we're going to discuss this morning. But I do want to begin by looking at, um, even within the Scriptures, that you can find little hints of this, and I just enjoy this part. Um, I put up here specifically this phrase, even the Gentiles. Now, you may find this uh, identified in different ways. It says, um, you know, referring to the pagans, or, you know, even those outside of Christ do this or that. And I just put a few passages up here. I thought it would be good for us to read these. Let's get look at the first passage, Matthew chapter 5, verse 47. Jesus is going through the Sermon on the Mount and He's trying to to bring about a new order of things. He's trying to make sense, not just of the Old Testament law and how He's going to convert that over or show its true fulfillment in Him, but He's also going to make sense of the world. Towards the end of His main uh, rebuttal against how the Jews were distorting some main components of the law, Jesus is going to end this particular section by talking about love. He talks in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, You've heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So the Jews are thinking, oh yeah, you know, we have all these Old Testament passages that talk about how we are to deal with our enemy and how we are to take care of the people that are with, you know, uh, close by to us, whatever that may be. And we know that Jesus already confronts this kind of mentality uh, by looking at the Good Samaritan. I appreciated Jeremy's lesson a while back in uh, Missions Month talking about the Good Samaritan and seeing that that was Jesus' purpose. Like, who's the good neighbor? Who should be taking care of whom? That kind of thing. Well, that's what he's describing in this passage. But what I find fascinating is you go a little bit further down. And he says in verse 46, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do even the Gentiles do the same? There's these little phrases that will pop up all their scripture and we can see them in our dialogues with other people. I just thought it'd be important for us to maybe plant ourselves in a passage where Jesus is looking. He's like, look at how the Gentiles treat one another. Don't they treat one another fairly? Don't they have certain laws and certain things in place that take care of them? He said, it just makes sense. Why is there this sense of reciprocity towards one another? We want to provide for one another. We want to be benevolent. We want to be loving. He said, even the Gentiles get this. So Jews, how did you miss the boat? How did you forget what love is all about when you have people that don't even have the same law that was breathed out by God that you had, that was given to you from Mount Sinai? Why aren't they doing what you should be doing, but they're doing above and beyond? You missed something. There's other passages like this as well. Uh, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and this is within uh, the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. As Paul's writing to the Corinthian church, they have some things that have to get straight. There are some things that are just out of whack with the church in Corinth. Culturally, they're a mixed bag of fruit. It is a melting pot of societies and cultures and morals. You know, right there in the city of Corinth, they have a temple that's dedicated to the goddess of love. And so they have all the practices that go along with it. There's just something about that city that is collecting all kinds of bad ways of thinking. And so the church is living in the midst of it, and they're being a shining light. And in some respects, they're doing a fantastic job, but in others, they've allowed the society to creep in a little bit. One such instance is the one that we probably focus on the most in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Verse 1, Paul says, It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that's not even tolerated. What? Even among pagans. It doesn't even make sense to people that are outside of Christianity, that are outside of Judaism. These pagans, they don't even do the same things that you are being arrogant and boasting about. You missed the boat. (laughs) There's something that's just not right here. So even Paul appeals to this. But I guess the main one, and uh, this we will revisit, but I want to go ahead and put a pen in it for our understandings in Romans chapter 2. Romans 1, God, uh, Paul comes through and he, he tells us that you can find God within creation. His divine attributes have been placed within creation that we can see them. Insert Psalm chapter 19, where even the heavens declare the handiwork of God. If you go all throughout Psalm chapter 19, it's a beautiful passage, and look at some of the descriptions in there, some of the verbs that are used that talk about creation, uh, proclaiming, telling, preaching, You know, all these different uh, slight nuances that they tell about God. If creation, the, the inanimate objects of this world, declare God, then what does God's prized possession declare about Him? Yes, we're created in His image, and we have this stamp within us that shows something even more than a rock is able to do, or the stars of the heavens. So Paul takes that same argument, he comes to the Romans and he tells them, look, you should be able to see all these things within creation, but you've abandoned in some ways what you should have known basically from creation itself, but you don't just have creation. You have God's word. And so he gets in the Jews' face a little bit, and this is where you get to Romans chapter two, and he's like, what in the world is going on with you Jews that you know what God says, yet you refuse to do it? Or you know what God says, but you're tying up different burdens for other people. As his argument continues on in Romans chapter 2, look at what he says. I'm going to back up to verse 12 so you can get a little context what he's saying. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles, so even the Gentiles, even the pagans, for when the Gentiles, who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. Verse 15 specifically. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Did you catch what Paul is saying here? That feeling that we get about morals, about decisions, about what is right and what is wrong. He said that icky feeling or that just wrongness, that conscience that starts rising up within you. That shows that the law of God is written on men's hearts. That's powerful. That makes sense to our chaotic world. And that's where we're going to hang our hat this morning and think about that feeling that we get is more than just a feeling of indigestion. It's something that is written within us that is a code that tells us there is something beyond us. So Paul appeals to it. Jesus appeals to it. It's created by God. It's something that we should be aware of. So I want to give that to you as we begin our discussion and think about even the Gentiles. Even people without the defined law realize that there should be something more. And so this is going to allow us to pick up from where we were last week. We got to two of the six points Uh, Making a case for objective morals. How can we know that morals actually exist in our world? The first one is because we talk about moral matters. The fact that people debate, they argue, they tell who's wrong and who's right over certain issues, that tells us that there might need to be a standard or there is a standard that we're not aware of. Secondly, objective morality best accounts for the way we view moral reformers. Uh, I I thought this was a, a good quote to go along with it. All great moral reformers, had to appeal to a transcendent, so something beyond us, objective, something that's firm, and universal moral law that opposed the existing moral consensus of the culture. Immediately within our context, we think about the history of Montgomery and think about some of the things that began here. Why did Martin Luther, uh, why did he have a, a place to stand? Why did people listen to him? Because he was appealing, you know, specifically to, to something higher, something transcendent, something beyond what we were thinking right here at our base level view. He was looking above. Other reformers have done the same thing, whether they want to put it on top of uh, another type of God or they want to put it on something that uh, like reason or whatever. They're looking beyond the flesh, and they're saying we have to change what is the status quo right now. So I think those two points, uh, and we briefly touched on those last week, uh, show us that objective morality does exist. But let's go a little bit uh, beyond that, and uh, we'll add some more to it, but this will springboard into the rest of our discussion. Objective morality makes the best sense of how we commonly view moral mistakes. Now, when you think about moral mistakes, that just sounds like, you know, whoops, shouldn't have done that. You know, you think about a mistake, I think about maybe some televangelist that they refuse the word, to use the word sin. <laughs> you know, they just, well, you know, just made a bad decision for the day. Or, uh, you know, you, you, you did something that just, you could have done better. You know, dancing around it. Moral mistakes, we just make it sound like, you know, I was, shouldn't have done that. Tisk tisk. you know, a little slap on the wrist. But when we talk about actual moral mistakes, let's go and think about some of the big ones throughout history. And why do people get in an uproar? Why was Hitler wrong? Why did what uh, Stalin did, why was that something the world objected to? You look within smaller societies, smaller countries, you look in every part of the world that there have been people that have made moral mistakes that get people upset. Well, why? What are they appealing to? What are they saying is not right? What are they going to do to correct what that person is doing? We look at that and we say, that's more than a mistake. That's a whole decision that is completely wrong from the beginning to the end, inside and out. But if our world says there are no objective morals, you can't really know what is right and what is wrong. How do they address people that do wrong or don't do what they think is right? There has to be something more. There has to be a higher appeal of things. Um, Objective morality offers the best account for the way we act as victims of injustice. It's one thing to look at somebody and say, ah, they made a mistake. They were not acting according to the right morals. It's another thing when you're on the receiving end of it, right? If you are being victimized or you're uh, receiving something that is unjust, unfair, not right, people get in an uproar. You take away my rights, well, where did your rights come from? Is it just because the law said that your rights? Or are you appealing to something higher? When we are victimized, when we're on the receiving end of something that's just not right, all of a sudden, all of our subjective morality goes out the window. We want to start saying, no, that's not the way things should be. There is a higher standard. There's something different. I'm being treated unfairly. People do that all of the time. It shows us that there's something objective out there. Number five, objective morality is not undermined by moral diversity in the world or any given culture. Just because different people do different things doesn't mean there's not a baseline. Different cultures may have different standards on what we consider to be moral issues, but there is something behind the scenes that everyone is appealing to. There's a portion of moral agreement that's necessary for societies to function together. Will never will we ever meet a consensus? Will every country ever be the same? Well, if it was up to man, no, we're going to have these disagreements. Now, if we were all under a theocracy of God's law, then okay, we might be able to reach a consensus, but because of our own passions and desires, how could we ever get there? I thought this was a good quote. It says, If scientific disagreements don't undermine the objective status of science, then moral disagreements shouldn't undermine the objective status of morality. Just because people are saying different things doesn't mean that there's not something objective out there. So I want us to think about that. And finally, um, The fact is that morals do exist. There is right and wrong. You can't get away from it. If you want to take that last point and put every other uh, point underneath that, it all supports this idea, morals are out there. And we've been talking about them since the beginning, and we still don't have it figured out as a society, as a whole, correct? But what's going to make sense of the chaos? Only Scripture is able to do that. Uh, so, any observations? Um, I know we uh, rifled through those pretty quick. Uh, what do you notice about these points? Do any of them stick out to you specifically? Do you uh, have some comments? I'd be uh, willing to hear those. Yeah. yeah absolutely so yeah if you take these points as discussion points you say all right i'm gonna you know you're just having discussions all right you're going to talk to somebody that doesn't see eye to eye with our biblical worldview they're not a christian um or they're just unsure about christianity in relation to other uh religions whatever that may be and say hey i've got some points let's talk about these do you agree or disagree with each one it's going to be it's going to be really hard to find somebody that You know, generally, that will disagree with these. They might have a a slightly different take on it, but most people are going to hang, you know, behind each one. They're going to agree with that. So that at least gives us a foothold for more discussion. Uh, I think it does open up the doors. Um, But it's a different thing when you consider these. You know, intellectually, you think, oh yeah, I agree with each one, but practically when somebody gets in the midst of a situation they may say oh you know objectives uh, there are no objective morals they're just subjective but then you put them in a place where their rights are taken away or they're being treated unfairly they'll come back here <laughs> they'll come back to center um and so i think that's a good point what other observations These are just something to think about as you discuss with others. Um, each one can go in a, a fuller discussion. I realize that. And just the, the class itself, it is limited on um, what we're able to cover. But I did want to give those points to you. Um, and I would encourage you to think about them some more, add to them, see what you can find, see what you can clarify, and um, test them out. Uh, see what will stick. So there's uh, just some ways. We haven't even really talked about Scripture in this way. We're just talking about how we feel about things. So let's add God into the mix. We live by biblical worldview, as we discussed last week. You know, people see the world in different ways, what makes sense to them. But we're saying there's a biblical worldview. We say there is a higher power that has interacted, created creation and put us in our place. And has put parameters and boundaries and told us what we should and should not do and have created us to respond correctly in each one of those. All right. So that's our worldview. Not everyone agrees with that. But we have to think what makes our God different than someone else that has a God that interacts with creation, that has a book, that has standards, that has a religion? What makes our God different than them, than their God? So let's briefly think, describe to me God's nature. When you think about God's nature, what do you think of? What are some characteristics? This is class, Mm -hmm. Do what now? He never, he never lies. He doesn't deceive. Okay? What else? He's good. What else? All knowing. He's kind. He is kindness. <laughs> Understanding. What else? Long suffering. Sacrificial love. Just. Unchanging. all-knowing, all-powerful, forgiving, absolutely. God is love, right? And all those beautiful characteristics of how we describe love and how we implement love within our lives is that God is beyond us, okay? We understand that He is above us. But He's not so far distant that we get to describe God without seeing that come crashing into our world as well. Um, He's not just something that exists beyond us and doesn't care about us anymore. He's not something that is uh, outside of us and just left us to our own merit to decide whatever we want in the world. He has things that make up his nature. All the terms that we've used, all the descriptions, all the interactions that God has uh, shown us and told us about, we say this is what God's nature is. Go back to Romans chapter 1. His divine attributes, his nature, can be seen within creation. Now, the problem is when creation turns to the. When what is created turns to creation itself as its God. That's where all these pagan religions really started coming from, right? They abandoned the true God and they started going after something that was not like God at all. Not just in a created image, not in, you know. Uh, The works of men's hands. But also look at the religions that they ended up creating. Why when people started making these other gods, or when the Israelites abandoned the one true God, they went after these other practices that are vile and despicable. How did Israel degrade themselves so much that they began worshiping a God that required them to sacrifice their children? Why did they go to the, the land of the Canaanites and they abandoned their God and they started worshiping Molech, one of the most vile gods that it's. I can't even believe that man created? Why did they degrade themselves so much that they thought that that was acceptable? What what led way to that, Of that child sacrifice was okay? You look at the God of Molech and you compare Him to the, the God that is in Scripture. If you were going to give me the option of which one would you rather serve? The one that has all of your interests at heart and wants to do the best for you or the one that's going to require you to go through something that I cannot even imagine? Why do we look at that? And of course, we're going to say option one, above and beyond. But why did people choose option two? That's one of the reasons why the Canaanites were destroyed. is because of behavior like that, that God used his people, the Israelites. He used them as an example and he said, he brought them in and took them out. Should have completely, but they didn't. You know, I find it fascinating. It's, it's one of my favorite descriptions of Israel. He calls them stiff-necks. God says in the Old Testament, Paul says in the New Testament, he calls them stiff neck. You know what it means to have a stiff neck, right? You wake up in the morning and you have that crick in your neck. How is driving the rest of the day? When you're about to back out of your driveway, how well does that go if you're not really good at using your mirrors? You're going to try and look over your shoulder, right? It hurts. Because if I have, a, you know, if my neck is acting normal, and let's say I'm going this way, I can look and I can see what's over here and what's over here, but I can keep the, the course. If I've got a stiff neck and I'm on a mission right here, and there's some things happening over here to look at it, what am I going to do? I change my direction. When the Israelites are described as stiff neck, they can't stay on God's path without looking to the left and to the right and not compromising their path. That's exactly the charge given to Joshua in Joshua chapter 1. When he says, be strong and be courageous. uh, courageous. Don't divert from the path. Yeah, you're about to go into a land that's doing a lot of vile and destitute things. Don't have a stiff neck. You see them for what they are, but you stay the course to God. When we think about God's nature and, and just comparing that to the things of the world, I will choose God. But... As we do look at Scripture and we say that God is all-knowing, all-loving, and all these great you know, descriptions of Him, people are still going to offer objections. So what I want to do for the remainder of our time this morning is to um, address some of these objections and to uh, try and get a better understanding for uh, God Himself. Now, um, I'm just going to put all these up here, and I'll talk as i try and get them up. If you're going to make a case for God, what we're going to be referring to today, of looking at morals, is just one, one tool in the belt. You're going to pull the, the hammer and you're going to use it versus uh, using the screwdriver. Okay? So if you're going to make a case for God, there's a lot of things you can do. When we talk about apologetics, and I appreciate the guys coming in last week for VBS, and uh, although I didn't have a chance to listen to those lessons yet, I know uh, without a shadow of doubt what they do is phenomenal. And you can make cases for God uh, in a lot of different ways. You can just look at the creation itself. Romans 1, Psalm 19, all of that. Um, you can look at creation. You can look at miracles. Uh, I'm looking forward to Gift's class, shameless plug, Gift, just for you. Uh, his class on the resurrection, the greatest miracle that happened. We can show evidences for it, we can prove that the resurrection of Jesus happened. Um, but we can also look back at many other miracles throughout time and we say God was the description behind that. C.S. Lewis describes uh, miracles in general. He says an interference with nature by supernatural power. If we can say that things were a little off, things did not act according to their plan, people just don't rise up from the dead unless something's behind it. Can we make a case that Jesus actually was raised from the dead? That would be a whole class in and of itself. But then you also have arguments from desire. Why? Have there been people creating gods? Why have they done all these other things in the world to, to appeal to a higher power? Something to be said there. But our main purpose is looking at the moral argument. We're objectively obligated to do good and avoid evil. You're familiar with C.S. Lewis. Um, I know Caleb has taught a couple of classes, um, and maybe just in you know readings or whatever, you come across C.S. Lewis. One of the main things that he's uh, known for is his book on mere Christianity. It was actually uh, some radio talks um, that were put into a bound form. Um, You can actually, there's a little clip out there if you're interested in this. You can go find a little clip of those radio talks, and you can actually hear him. Uh, This is the only one, as far as I know, the only one that's out there to actually hear what C.S. Lewis sounded like. But what he's known for, and he was making dents in uh, the atheistic world, is his transition of being this great, well-known scholar, he was a classic. Um, he consumed himself in literature. Uh, there's a little series out there that calls uh, it's a comes from a quote of him. And he talks about he was the most reluctant convert. Is that when he came to an understanding that God existed, he refused to follow Him because that would make him have to make changes in his life. So he calls himself the most reluctant uh, convert. But this is what he describes about himself. He says, "My argument against God is that the universe seems so cruel and unjust." But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? Of course I've given up my idea. I could have given up my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own. Subjective. But I didn't do that. Then my argument against God collapsed too. For the argument defended on saying, uh, depended rather, on saying that the world was really unjust, not simply that it did not happen to please my private fancies. Did you catch what he was saying here? I thought that the world was unjust, that there was actually the standard of what was just and what is unjust. But where had I gotten that idea from? Why did I feel like I was being victimized? Why did I have this innate sense about me that people were making moral mistakes? That there were things that were just not right. I could have abandoned my view of justice and could have said, you decide to do whatever you want to, and I'm just gonna, you know, I'm just gonna feel the way that I do. No one really, when you put the rubber to the road, thinks that way. They're going to line back to center. They're going to come back to those points. and They're going to say something's not off. So I thought this was good just to make some sense uh, and give an example. So let's think about a case for a moral God a little bit more. You have God himself. We've already described his nature, what makes up who he is. But we've also, throughout this time, thought about what is good. Now, as our discussions will progress, specifically as we get to some of our major topics in the last half of this quarter, we'll be dealing with what really is the best good in each scenario. But we have this idea that there's God and there's good. But we want to know, how do they work together? Are they separate or are they tied? People have tried to confront this with a a few different objections. One of them comes from a a discussion, um, Plato and a man named Euthyphro. He's coming up with this conversation, and the guy's asking, he says, does God command things because they are good? So good exists outside of God's. And so when God makes a law, he's just, he's just describing what is already good that everybody understands. Or are things good because God commands them? So here's the real objection that comes from there. If we say, well, you know, whatever God decides, that's actually what the greatest good is. Could we then say if God all of a sudden changed his rules and said, Let's kill all infants. Would we then say, well, God said it, that's good, so the law is now good. No, we look at that and we think, no, that just doesn't make sense. Why would God do that? We well, you know He's all loving, He's all powerful, so He wouldn't ask us to do something right, like that, right? We already start objecting that. We say, that doesn't make sense to God's nature because I know what God's nature is. So how does God and good work together? That's what we're trying to find the balance of. There's really a, another option, Is God has reasons for his commands, but these reasons are not sufficient by themselves in explaining moral obligations without God's commands. A little complicated way of thinking about it like this. It's not that just good exists by itself. And it's not that whatever God commands is good. It's this whole package of everything put together. God would never ask us to do anything that is not good. Because good is an extension of God. When we really get into the nuts and bolts, the roots of morals, and we get into being able to make the right decisions in life, when we get into ethics, what we're going to say is this. Can you act like Jesus? You see, Jesus is the Word of God in flesh. John 1. Hebrews chapter 1. talks about Jesus is the exact imprint of what? God's nature. And He is the radiance of His glory. When you see Jesus, you see God. And what you get from that is God has never asked us to do something that He just arbitrarily decided. He even went above and beyond to show us what to do, not just tell us. When we look at one of the greatest moral reformers in the world, People are going to put Jesus on a pedestal. They're going to think about the great things that he did. Whether they believe in him or not, just the literature itself, they're going to look and they're going to say, Jesus did a lot of good. He was good. Well, why? We look at it from behind the scenes and we say he's good because he is God. But he's showing us, and Jesus himself living by the law of God shows us that God has always asked us to do the greatest good. It's this balance of working everything together. God's relationship to good is that... He himself is good. So when we think about Christian ethics, it's a blend of both virtues and principles. Virtues are the, the character about us. We go back to Psalm chapter 1, Proverbs chapter 1. Blessed is the man that does this or this or this. We go to the words of Jesus and the Beatitudes. Blessed are those that are this and receive this. It's a character change. It's a content change. I'll describe when we talk about making a defense for Christianity, when Jesus talks about salt and light, salt has a quality about it. He says you're the salt of the earth. You have a quality about you that's supposed to serve a purpose. What happens to the salt if it doesn't, if its quality breaks down? What purpose is salt for? To be thrown out and trampled under men's feet. If we don't respond correctly, we don't have the right character about us, then are we actually looking like Jesus? But then are we actually living by the principles themselves, the laws, the regulations? Morality is ultimately grounded in the character of God. That is the ultimate source for morality is not God's commands, but God's character. And the commands are an extension of His character. The virtues which are made clear by God's character are further clarified by Jesus' character and are ultimate foundation for morality. God issues the commands that He does because He is the kind of God that he is. I love that. I think that's a great way of describing it. But although we look at this, and for the most part, this makes sense to us, there are still some objections. And I want to get your view on these. So objections against a moral God. All right. We can say that there is a God, but we can also say that good exists in the world. But the reality is there's also evil. So respond to this. If God is all loving and all powerful, how can he allow pain, evil, and suffering to exist? What's your response to that? When somebody says, all right, you're saying your God is so loving, but people are dying, people are suffering, cancer still exists, why would he not just wipe it away? What's your response? Say that again, sorry. Okay, so things have to end. Okay, so there's a cycle of life, okay? What else would you say to somebody? (laughs) There may be a grizzly bear that shortens that cycle. Okay, what else would you say to somebody? Okay, so evil gives a fuller definition to what is good. Um, in some way on, it makes me think of Paul a little bit when he says, I would not have known what it was to covet had God not told me what it was. You know, there's this idea that it makes sense. You kind of have to, to show those side by side. And so maybe that's part of it is to really understand the fullness of good. You got to have the, the counter to that. Okay, what else would you say? Okay, so if you just say, all right, well, if God can take away all pain, all suffering while we're on this earth, he's going to remove everything, what does that then turn us into, walking robots? You know, that we don't make any decisions, everything's already decided for us, free will is compromised, and then we say, well, that's one of the things that he's given us, so I think you're onto something there. So the pain and suffering can shape us to really appreciate God and what He's planning for us. Paul as well will say this when he talks about, you look at the sufferings of this present world, they pale in comparison to the eternal glories. Whatever we face here is limited. Whatever we will be granted for all of eternity will never end. Yeah, and uh, I think what helps, and you just can't help but interject Jesus in every scenario because it just makes sense of our world. Because you think, all right, so God's saying, all right, you're going to have to suffer through some things. There's going to be some difficult things in this world, but it's preparing you for something greater beyond you. That makes sense to us. We see it, but you actually talk to somebody that's going through cancer, and they're saying, why would God allow this or permit this to happen? You start dealing with it in a different way. But here's the way that Jesus makes sense of the situation to me. It's not just a theoretical thing that God says, well, I put all this in place and you just come on, you know, come on up, come on up. He comes down and takes you by the hand and says, can I walk with you? Jesus went through some of the most cruel and unimaginable suffering to show us, let me do it for you. I came here for you. It's not this God that's above us and says, you know, come on, you know, you'll eventually get over this. And, and, you know, I've got some things in place and I'll kind of bless you as you go along. And no, he says, let me walk with you. It's not just God by himself that God put on flesh. You can't leave Jesus out of the equation. It just, uh, it's, it's beautiful when you think about it that way, but people are going to eject and they're going to say, well, you know, if God's all loving and powerful. Why can't he remove evil? What's, what's the purpose of pain and suffering? And you've hinted on some of that. You've gotten uh, right to it. But uh, let's go a little bit further uh, before uh, we lose time. People also respond then and say, well, then how can God send people to hell? If evil exists and he's actually going to punish evil, how could your God really do this? Um, Sarah, I think it was you that mentioned this when we were describing God's nature. He is just. There are rules in place that are an extension of who he is, and he will act according to those. 1 John chapter 1 talks about God being just. If you walk in the light as He is in the light, what will happen? You have forgiveness of sins. If you confess your sins to Him, He is faithful and what? Just to forgive us. He does forgive us, and that's part of who He is. He, he wants to help us. He wants to do whatever He can. And so part of, you know, how can God send people to hell? It's the real response is that He is just. Yeah, it's, it's tied to his nature. And he's already told us everything, what we should and should not do. Um, why did God allow or promote atrocities to happen in the Bible? Why did God cause the Canaanite genocide? Well, it's an extension of where we've already been, is that evil has to be punished, and there is going to be a punishment for it. Even our world sees that, and they start implementing things. Israel was a theocracy, and it was meant to go into other parts of the world, and it had a purpose. Read the story of Rahab another time. Why did she come to an understanding that the God of the Bible, the God of the Jews, was the only one and true God? Said her heart melted within her when she saw what he was doing. And we find her in the family of Jesus. She saw the atrocities happening around her and a punishment, and she came to understand God. It gives us a great thing there. And here's the last thing, um, and we'll end here, and this will spur us on to next week. Goodness extends from God. Because of God's nature, He asked us to do things. He prepared us to do things. He created us to do things because they're an extension of who He is. Goodness exists because it is from God. And we will shape this a little bit more so that we can understand uh, virtue, so we can understand ethics, so that when we get to bigger issues in life, we know why they are the way that they are. So I appreciate you guys. Uh, Sorry we had to run through a little bit of that at the end, but um, thank you for being here. Looking forward to next week.